0: So as long as it's fair, as long as it's voluntary, inequality is fine. Inequality is great. We want those who succeed to be more rewarded than those who destroy value. But in the sense of our current environment, we have really sinister inequality. If everybody, you know, if, if the water's flowing and everyone is benefiting, right, everyone's cup is filled, um, people are happy, right? They have better things to do than to line up outside of someone's house and threaten to chop their head off. You know, I, I don't think we should be setting up guillotines anywhere. And that's that's why I love Bitcoin. It's the peaceful revolution, right? Um, but why do people want to set up these guillotines? Because they know the system isn't working. Um, it's not working for them. And despite, you know, working very hard at, um, at many jobs and climbing the ladders, it's still, uh, you know, the prospects for retirement uh, even even the ability to afford a home today is is just it, it, it's it's outside of the reach of so many very hard-working americans the system is not serving them uh this the system stratifies wealth uh through asset inflation and uh and disproportionate access to to assets welcome to the tucson blockchain podcast today i have on greg Crennan from golden coast consultants Greg is a financial advisor and a gold bug. I ran across him on Twitter, and I thought I had to have him on the podcast because he, like myself, understands that inflation is terrible and dislikes the Fed. He says that his job is to protect people's wealth from out-of-control central bankers, and this was a great conversation as we discussed that. Alrighty. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Tune hey, in. thanks Alex for having me. Yeah, tuning in from uh, San Diego. So you're the, uh, you're a financial advisor at Gold Coast Financial Group. Is that correct?
1: Uh, Golden Coast Consultants, correct.
0: Oh yeah, I was off. Um, That's- <laughs> and so you're, you're uh you manage people's wealth we had a conversation about a week ago you manage people's wealth and uh you're a big fan of gold and your clients portfolios which is a kind of a unique uh way to go about things a, a lot of people have gold in their portfolios but i think you are a bigger uh, gold bug than most financial advisors so um
1: well i i well i'm
0: for uh what the
1: mission for Golden Coast is wealth creation and wealth preservation for uh, for anybody, right? So uh, it's how does someone who ha- really doesn't have a lot, you know, build that wealth. And then when someone does have wealth who, uh, you know, retire and, and doesn't really understand what to do with their money, uh, kind of breaking from the traditional norm of say, like, you know, having your money managed at Fidelity or other kind of uh, wealth management firms, that kind of, you know, force everyone into uh, in, index ETFs, you know, these Vanguard funds, uh, because it's kind of like a one big scheme because the funds are run by the companies that are pushing them on to customers. So, you know, they, they get basically like a, a 2% fee and then they they collect a the commission on the profits that you make. So, you know, you make 10% on the year on your money. Uh, then they take 2% uh, for, the, for the fee. They take 2% for commission and then you have to pay capital gains tax. So, you know, at the end of the day, that 10% that you made for the year uh, is, you know, below 5%. And then you have inflation that could really be higher than 5%. So you, know, you could really have like a zero net gain sum, uh, you know, after all the fees and everything else is done. Uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk about how like you have this big passive investing where everyone just buys the ETFs, buy like the, S&P 500 ETF, the SPY or the NASDAQ, which is the triple Q's. So you have like all this index fund passive investing going into all these funds. Uh, and then that's because people manage the funds, you know, collect a small fee. Uh, so they, they kind of like, you know, distort the, you know, what people should really be doing and it kind of creates this big, you know, massive, uh, financial, uh, possible bubble. Uh, you know, because everyone's buying the same thing and don't don't really understand what they're buying.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I feel like the role of a financial advisor is so important, because the typical person doesn't have the time to get in and work on all of these uh, um, financial tools. And most people, you know, they get a job and start making some money, and they don't know the difference between a mutual fund and ETF. And and struggle with the research but yeah the fees well, are the, oh,
1: the other thing too is is that companies give you a 401k and mm-hmm. a lot of times a 401k also forces you into these type of index funds so basically the entire system is like designed to force people into the same investment right so if everyone's buying the same thing you know everything goes up right because there's more buyers than sellers so you know all those 401k contributions every month is going into probably some sort of uh, index fund uh, that's tied somewhat to the to the market, so you know you just always are going to have like this uh, money flow every single month uh, because of everyone's tied to a 401k until the 401k kind of like goes away, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's one of the growing trends, It's been a trend for a while, but one of the growing trends is just seeing older people working uh, because they're unable to retire, even if they've had savings throughout their whole life. And inflation's really that killer. Um, one of my favorite tools to point people to is the Chapwood Index uh, because uh, Ed Butowski uh, uh, takes a basket of like 500 goods uh, per city and is able to calculate the increased cost of living. And so, so in San Diego, it's probably a lot more than I, I would imagine it's a lot more than Tucson. Tucson's one of the lowest in the country, but it's still an 8.2% yearly increase. Um, and that's pretty hard to beat.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, as far as the inflation and kind of like looking as, at, at the cities, uh, I like to look at the, on the Fed, they have uh, on their uh, Fred uh, website or Fred app, uh, you can pull up the U.S. top 20 consumer price index. So obviously most people live near or in cities. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a better price gauge on what inflation, that number is pretty high. I think the last time I checked, it's around like 6%. So like, you know, the top 20 cities, inflation has gone up 6% uh, year over year. So, and that's a majority of where people live is, is near cities. So that means majority of the populations uh, in the U.S. is being affected by inflation. But those things that that they're considering that it's like, say, up 6% year over year is like food, shelter, um, you know, which aren't typically measured in what the Fed measures in inflation. So. Uh, and then things like minimum wage, you know, uh, minimum wage is going up in uh, all states. So even though the federal law minimum wage right now is only like 750, uh, each state can uh, put their own law or pass their own law for minimum wage. So like each state, I think 20 something states have been raising their minimum wage above the $7. So the, you know, that, that passes a cost amongst goods uh, and services to the consumer. So you have like all these uh, factors. Uh, coming into when when he comes to uh, inflation, and also the fact that inflation is not really defined perfectly. So a lot of people talk inflation and, and deflation, and uh, you know you can say, well, uh, if you're going to have deflation, well, how can that be possible if uh, minimum wage keeps going up? So Joe Biden's running for president; he wants to have a $15 minimum wage. You know, so you can't run a business operating as if you were paying people a lower wage. That means prices have to rise so people say well we would have uh, deflation in the future how, you know how could you if you're paying people more money unless you're, you're selling way more but then if there's you know so th- there's that whole supply and demand imbalance but uh, there's a lot of factors that go into it and you have also like you know they're doing new uh, monetary policies such as um, the additional unemployment benefits they're doing the you know just 1200 dollars stimulus checks just giving people money you know trump announced uh, over the past week, that he just wants to give out 1,200 checks to everybody, so like you have this massive increase in basically purchasing power, uh, where more people will have more zeros in their account, but then that there's no more there's no more actual goods that you can purchase, so that that stays fixed. So those prices would have to rise to kind of balance the equilibrium between the supply and demand for goods and people that want them.
0: Yeah. So pretty much what we're going to see is the do dollar menu at McDonald's going to grow ever more small and even cease to, it's right, going to right. be, good. you know,
1: the, that 99 cent menu, you know, they, they, you know, it used to be like, you know, six piece chicken nugget for 99 cents and became like the five piece chicken nugget for like 99 cents and like the four piece chicken nugget. So that there's other ways that you can have inflation, right? So you can be like, well, the, the chicken McNugget thing is, is still 99 cents, but You used to be able to get like eight chicken nuggets for 99 cents. And so the amount of quality uh, is getting less and less chicken nuggets, but the price is still 99 cents. So that's still inflation, even though people are like, oh, it's still like the dollar menu item. So there are multiple different ways that the entire system uh, manipulates around inflation. But when you go into the root cause of these prices and how like even the chicken nuggets that are getting, uh, lower and lower in that 99 cents is because the dollar is losing that purchase power. So the, the dollar used to be able to buy you, you say eight chicken nuggets, you know, years ago, it will not only get you like, you know, whatever it is, you know, five piece, four piece, you know, chicken nuggets. So, you know, I, I can buy less chicken nuggets now with a dollar than I, than I used to be able to at, at McDonald's. So, uh, all of this, you know, is the root cause of the the val- the devaluation of the dollar. And, they have all these you, know, you know, CPI and a PCE inflation gauge and they, they change the definition of inflation is because you, you, they don't want people to really understand what inflation is, which is basically the devaluation of the dollar causing the price of goods to go up. And when you're looking at uh, you know when you do a science project and you are trying to you know you have a hypothesis. you're trying to figure out like well what if I change this? right? You have to always have a constant, right? So if I am trying to figure out uh, if there's really inflation, I would need to have like a constant over a long period of time. Well, over a long period of time, the best gauge that we have would be gold, right? So gold, and you can just go back, you know, the 107 years that the Federal Reserve has been created. And gold used to be like $19. Well, now it's like 1900 so that means that the dollar has lost 99 percent of its purchasing power over the past 107 years
0: because what we know is that
1: gold one ounce of gold used to be 19 dollars well now it's 1900 so over the past 100 years one ounce gold hasn't changed right so if you had one ounce of gold and you know if our great grandparents had one ounce of gold and they all kept it uh it's still one ounce today and it's still gold uh, and the, the values and the properties are still the same, but the value of the dollar has decreased by 99%. So that would be our constant. So when they're co- talking about all these different inflation measures and you know, the CPI and the PCE and, and, and they're now we're targeting 2% inflation or higher than 2% inflation, uh, you know, well, well, what's the constant? Because they also keep on changing how they measure inflation. So if they keep on changing it, it just keeps everyone in like this guessing game because they don't want people to actually know because they're the ones controlling the money supply. So they they come up with these different things, uh, different formulas, uh, different terms to kind of keep people off their toes. Uh, But so you would need a constant to really understand, well, is it inflation or deflation that we're having? And the only good constant that we've had over the past 100 years, 100 plus years, I mean, gold has been around for thousands of years, but if you want to talk U S specifically, you know, a good, you know, hundred year history of inflation would be the, the price. of. Gold.
0: Yeah. One of the things I like to do uh, when I'm explaining uh, inflation to people is price, start to price things in gold, like price the S and P in gold or price the dollar in gold. Um, Cause generally we, we uh, price everything in the dollar. And when you do that, it gives you a very different picture of, of inflation that you know the P isn't just going up at a 45 degree angle constantly but the dollar's devaluing as well so it's not as dramatic as people think um
1: well one of the things also for like inflation right so you know a 100 years ago you know people used to be able to buy a good tailored you know we, we our, our uh culture has changed a lot but you know 100 years ago you used to be able to get a good tailored suit for one ounce of gold which was like 20 bucks Well, you know, going back to like that constant, if you were to get a nice tailored suit, a nice tailored suit would probably run you about one ounce of gold still, which would be about $2,000. So when you say like, well, one of the reasons why we don't buy a lot of suits is because one, it's expensive. You know, I think a lot of people would probably like buying uh, and wearing nice suits, but people don't want to fork over $2,000 for one. Uh, But we used to be able to do it. You know, if you look at pictures from like, you know, the 1920s uh, and the 1930s and, and the 40s, I mean, like everyone used to wear like three piece suits, like everyone, right? So uh, it didn't matter. So how did like everyone be able to afford a suit back then? And then like, if we try to do that today, you know, people would probably be like, you know, we, we can't afford like, you know, that many suits. Um, so that, that, that goes back to like, kind of like that constant. But you know, gold is basically kind of, you know, one suit has kind of kept up with like one ounce of gold uh, throughout that history. And now there's other things that take place that caused the price of those suits to go up with like the cost of labor, the cost of materials, but that's all because of the dollar has been losing its value. So all those other things get more expensive. So therefore the, the suit becomes more expensive. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, that's, that's a, just
1: kind of just another example.
0: That's a really good picture. And a lot of people my age are finding it's really getting out of school with tons of uh, uh, student debt. I was just talking to my friend, he's in a PA program. So he's gonna make a good chunk of money straight out of school. Um, but he's leaving a lot of his classmates are leaving with six figures of, of, debt. And so, and then to go and buy a house, um, on top of that is, it's just quite a huge burden. Um, and the wages don't follow the inflation. Um, and it's a big reason why we see such a stratification of wealth in our society is because, um, what, what I hope when, when. People hear inflation, is they hear confiscation, because that's essentially what the Fed is doing. Is they're confiscating the value of our our wealth and redistributing it to the people at the top. To the um, so yeah. So what got you uh, kind of on uh, anti Fed Fed bent?
1: Uh, it was really just uh, understanding the system. It, it started in 2008 when you know, the, the, we had the financial crisis uh, and really kind of like learning the system and learning why things happen. So, uh, that, and that was one of the reasons where it kind of got to me, got to where I was able to get to where I am today. Uh, really just understanding the system, understanding monetary policy, understanding what they were doing with quantitative easing, uh, lowering interest rates to zero, which, you know, is, and for so long, which was, you know, unheard of at the time. Uh, now it's like standard operating procedure, right? So they said, you know, rates are going to stay at zero until 2024. So like, okay, great. So, you know, you're not even going to consider, uh, you know, you know consumer prices do rise. So, you know, really just understanding like what they're trying to do so that I can help people. Uh, protect themselves. And because, uh, you know, I think that's part of the issue too is people don't understand how to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other thing is, uh, and like I said, a lot of people don't understand. Well, they they didn't say, well, you know, inflation is also like great if you own financial assets like real estate and stocks and, and other assets. But you're forgetting that the reason why they want inflation and this is one of the reasons why they're like, we're going to inflate our way out of debt, or or you may have heard that expression. We're going to inflate our way out of debt. Uh, because you know, if I sell my home for a higher price than I bought it, that, that there's a capital gains tax on that. So the government's now going to get a piece of, you know, the value of the house going up. And then not only that, but every single state, if housing goes up and you sell your home at a higher price than you previously did, the the house gets reevaluated on a higher property tax. So if I had a house that was at five hundred thousand and I was getting you know one percent on that, which is five thousand a year, and uh, the value goes up to six hundred thousand, now the property tax will go from five thousand a year to six thousand a year. So now that's more uh, state property tax uh, will collect based on the sale of the home going up. So they want real estate and housing prices to go up because that means now property taxes have just gone up. And you may, the, the, so the, the, the city or states don't actually have to increase the property tax, right? It could always stay at 1%. But if housing keeps going up and up and up, that 1% gets larger and larger and larger. So now that's more money that the state is taking. So uh, that's like that. that's why they say inflation is a hidden tax and uh, one that many people don't understand. Yeah.
0: I mean, there's so many taxes out there that are just oh yeah, right, yeah, right, unbelievable. But that, that
1: inflation that tax is like, so people, you know, that 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 property tax is a huge one because people mm-hmm. don't realize, uh, you know, we, you know, pro, you know, states never have to raise a property tax; they just need the housing value to go up. And what does lower interest rates do? It makes the price of housing go up because you can now afford a higher monthly uh, mortgage payment. So instead of affording that five hundred thousand dollar house, you can now afford that six hundred thousand dollar
0: house. Yep. Yep. Why, why do you think uh, there's such a mainstream consensus that inflation is good for economies?
1: Well, exactly why, uh, to protect the extremely wealthy because all they own assets and they, they don't want to be in the dollar. So they, you know, the, the lesser, the, or the more that the dollar loses its purchasing power, the, the wealthier that they become without actually doing any work. So it's like you know it's it's easy i you know uh it's like saying uh you know like the housing example is just a great one because everyone can relate to housing it's like everyone thinks that they're getting rich if they own a house but it's really the dollar just losing value so you didn't really do any extra work you just bought a house right but the house is now uh 10 worth more than what you you bought it at and that was because you know of everything we just recently talked about was you know interest rates went down more people can afford a, a that monthly payment. Maybe they put more less money down than say twenty percent. They put fifteen or ten percent down. Um, but everyone thinks they're getting rich because they say, "Oh, I bought the house for five hundred. Now it's worth six hundred. I, I gained a hundred thousand uh, dollars." But in reality, is well, then where else are you going to go because everything else went up uh, by that ten percent, right? So it, it's a, once again, it's a zero net gain, but people think that they're getting wealthier because they see the numbers getting up. So it's a nice little trick in society where you know we can kind of and it's kind of like a a, call it a a wealth effect have you heard of that before no all right so the wealth effect is basically like if people see if they own uh, money in the stock market and if they own a a house and they have their housing value goes up which you know housing is now the most expensive it's ever been uh the stock market is the most is the highest uh it closed you know near record highs today So everything, if you have any of these financial assets, uh, they're the highest in history. So you may not actually take out money on your house or out of stocks, but you may spend more money because you're like, oh, well, my house, I I have $100,000 in value in my house that I can always refinance in the future if I want to get that equity out. So you go and you spend, you get a new car, new TV, and that's kind of like what caused the housing bubble is that people thought they were so rich on paper because housing values kept on going up and then they kept doubling down and doubling down until it just couldn't anymore. Uh, and so that's the wealth effect is that you feel richer than you really are because your asset is going up in value and that's what inflation is. So, and Jerome Powell recently at his last meeting, uh, said that, yeah, if you own financial assets, uh, and we're targeting, uh, inflation over 2%, it's going to benefit you. Yeah. So those who don't own financial assets are going to get left behind. And then you have that wealth inequality widen and widen and widen because those who don't have those financial assets get wider and wider and wider.
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty astonishing. When you look at, uh, the numbers, as far as who controls the majority of these financial assets, um, and how centralized the wealth really is in our society. Um, Because the majority, you know, the stock market going up doesn't affect the majority of Americans, but the purchasing power of the dollar does, Um, and so yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty wild to see the president tweeting about it and proclaiming how great it is that the S and P is going up when you have record unemployment and an eviction crisis. yeah that was something I talked a lot of with uh, your friend fed up biz owner on the the podcast was the looming eviction crisis um, so for somebody that's just starting off and doesn't have any wealth what what are some good tools for them well
1: the the number one thing is get eliminate hmm. debt as quickly as possible right so if you have a credit card debt uh you know and what people don't realize is your credit card interest rates are still like around like 20% even though the banks are getting you know zero interest rate from uh that so you know these banks are charging people up to 20% on interest on their credit cards and so basically they're lending to you say $10,000 and then you max out that 10,000 on the credit card uh and they know that the dollars are losing value, but they're getting back 20%. So it's a huge win for the banks. Uh, while the people who need money max out their credit cards and then eventually don't have enough money to pay them off are, are stuck paying this interest rate. And then every month it go, goes higher and higher. And they think that if they're just making the minimum payments, uh, they're, they're doing okay, which in reality they're not. So you know, eliminating all debt, uh, now things like a house, um, if you can be in a good and own a house, not saying like a, a super expensive house but just a house in general because of the low interest rates and inflation that basically you can borrow money so cheap to purchase a home uh and if we believe that the dollar is going to continue losing its purchasing power you're basically going to pay the bank back that's uh, lending to you uh cheaper dollars than what we're purchasing today so that that kind of could be a great trade or investment uh, going forward if you believe that we're going to have bad inflation over the next, uh, you know, decade or so or, or longer. And, uh, yeah, just eliminating the debt. And, and then when you have, uh, currency, you know, dollars, uh, you're debt free is finding, uh, assets that will, you know, if you buy a business or a stock, you want something that pays you to own it, or you want an asset that does well, uh, with inflation, or an asset that is in high demand, uh, where the value of it will go up because supply is limited. So it's kind of like looking at all these uh, uh, macroeconomic themes and then figuring out, and then each person is different and then figuring out where is my best return on investment. And that's kind of like what's driven the stock market up so high is because when the Fed went to zero interest rates in March, people are like, okay, great. I have all this cash that yields me nothing. I got to put it somewhere. Where they put it they, they put it in the stock market. The thing is, gold and silver have actually outperformed the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ this year. So gold has outperformed the S&P 500. Uh, gold, I think, uh, I don't know exact, but it's like gold's up 27-ish percent year to date. Uh, S&P 500's up 5% year to date, 4% year to date. Uh, so gold's outperformed the S&P 500. Even if you threw in the dividends that you would get through the S&P 500, gold's still outperforming the S&P. Uh, now the NASDAQ is up, I think, 30-ish percent. So it's outperformed gold. But then if you look at silver, silver's outperformed the NASDAQ. So year-to-date, silver's up over 40%, and the NASDAQ's up like 30%, 32%. So gold's outperforming the S&P, and, you know, because the S&P is considered... Uh, because it's the 500 best companies in the world. So it's kind of the gold standard. It's funny, you know, gold standard companies is, you know, uh, comparable to gold. And then you kind of have the Nasdaq, we have all these companies that really aren't that profitable yet, but you're paying up for potential growth and, and potential profitability in the future if, if you believe in them. Uh, so that's kind of like silver also. So silver has those wild swings. Uh, so, you know, gold and the S&P 500 sometimes tend to, limit some of that volatility while in the NASDAQ, you know, you can have more of those upside swings to the upside and also to the downside. Uh, But yeah, silver has outperformed the NASDAQ year to date so far. Uh, So that, you know, that's just kind of showing you that uh, precious metals, if if you want to look at inflation really may not actually be in the the stock market, could be in precious metals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the price of silver right now. Yeah, gold yeah, I think is... We, oh, go ahead.
1: No, I think silver closed over or near 25 today, I think. Yep. $25 an ounce. But which was funny because the, the U.S. Mint uh, by the government is saying that one ounce uh, silver is actually now going to be valued at $67 an ounce. So there's actually a huge difference between what the U.S. Mint is offering a one ounce mint coin versus what 1 ounce is selling for uh, for silver's futures contract. So what I guess I'm trying to say with that is that the US government is saying that silver is really worth $67 an ounce. But the market is trading it at 25. So that means that the US mint w- would not accept $25 for that silver. Well, you know, so that is another, you know, inflation gauge, you know, one of those constants. You know, you could look at silver uh, along with gold as a one of those constant over a long period of time if there is inflation or not inflation. So you can kind of maybe, you know, compare both of them to really find out, because uh, you want that long history of data to be like, well, do we have inflation or don't we have inflation? Because, you know, like I said, they just keep on changing the definition and the different way that they measure it. And they do that on purpose so that it messes up everyone's investment strategy. And then, you know, we get programmed to think that, uh, we don't have it. We've never had inflation since the 70s. Basically, and people keep saying that we, we haven't had inflation since the 70s. Uh, and I think that was that's all part of the the grand you know scheme of once we went off the gold standard and we had that inflation. And once they raised the interest rates to 20%, it was basically cutting interest rates uh, all the way down uh, to where they are today at zero uh, since the 1980s. And what what has that done? Well, it's made Uh, housing go to all-time highs, the stock market go to all-time highs, It's made the bond market go to all-time highs, and it's made uh, precious metals go to all-time highs. So literally, all four of those assets, if you owned them and just held, you know, uh, uh, allocation in your portfolio of of each one of those four assets, uh, you know, are all more, are all worth more today than they are in the 1980s. But then you take into consideration, it's not really that that they may be actually worth more, it's just that that, once again, going back, that the dollar lost its purchasing power since the 1980s. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a realization. Uh, You talked earlier about 2008 being a real catalyst for you to start learning about this stuff. um, Because it was just, I I think for a lot of people, it was the first time that how uh, crazy and nefarious the actions of uh, bankers in general have been. um, And it really started devastating communities, just very openly and blatantly. Um, and I think we're seeing, I know out, out in Arizona was
1: really bad during that time for, for real estate. Yeah. I don't know if Arizona really recovered a hundred percent from that time frame.
0: Yeah. I'm not really sure either. I mean, uh, one thing that I know is that, you know, Tucson specifically, wealth inequality is a major issue. Um, and and wh- why when I talk about wealth inequality, I want I always want to. I I don't believe in uh, you know socialized taxing the rich and redistributing the wealth because what's inevitably going to happen is the government's going to, you know, do a really poor job of it. And what we're in our current monetary system, like going back again, just reiterating, you know, we're seeing a taxation and. Confiscation of wealth from people in the middle and the bottom, and redistributing it to the top, um, and that's really problematic. Uh, so that that's the type of wealth inequality that I I uh, focus on and talk about because what I want to see is a system that is fair. Um, for anybody that says that inflation hasn't happened in nineteen since nineteen seventy one, that's a really crazy statement. Um, there's these guys wrote, the 80s or at
1: least the 80s, yeah. at least the 80s. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I get really, uh, comput- so the past 40 years,
1: basically people have said that we haven't had inflation since over the past 40 years.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can ask any average person, um, have prices risen, um, over the, uh, past 10 years and have your wages followed. And they'll all say no, unless, you know, they were getting, you know, sweet job offers or, or promotions or something like that. But, um, um, it's pretty, you know, we feel it, it, it's a slow increase. Um, but it's a consistent one. Um, and th- well, you know, like
1: there, there's a lot of factors that, that go into there are, you know, it, cause it is supply and demand, right? Cause you know, if they create all this new money, but if it, you know, like right now that, you know, they're, they're talking about, you know, almost $2 trillion in, in a, you know, a legislation bill, uh, it depends on where that money is going. So if it's going directly to the people to spend, you know, but we're not making any more goods, well, then the price of goods would have to rise. So, but if they're printing it and it's going to say uh, businesses like the airlines, well, no one's really flying. So they're just giving money to the airlines uh, to stay in business to pay their debt that they have. So that's not really inflationary, even though they say, you know, uh, say they came out and they said, we're going to do $500 billion dollars and go to the airlines well the airlines it just it's just for them to just you know keep flying basically and and, and not to, to lay off the employers which i mean is a little bit in a way because but they are still contributing like they're not really spending their money uh directly because they're still working even though no one's using their goods and services so it's like you know keeping up this you know zombie of a, of a company because they're not really helping the current economy right now so but yeah so like i said there's just different ways so it Depends on where the money is going, because they can create all this money. But if it's not out in the economy, you know, so that there is that effect where there is no, you need velocity. Uh, but I think that the velocity is also misreported a little bit. Because, you know, if you look at the M2 velocity chart right now, you would see it on a huge decline downward. Uh, but what I think what has happened since uh, the first cares Act was that a lot of the money that people got, uh, they pay down their credit card debt, they pay down debt, and they also put money in savings. So you actually have like this, this cash sitting on the sidelines right now. So there is a little bit of this, this velocity going downwards. But then you would also look at the housing market, and you can see that people are buying houses and moving uh, at, at a pretty uh, significant rate. So that means that new loans have to be created to purchase the new home. So the money doesn't necessarily have to be like, I give it to you, Alex, and, and you give it to me. Uh, but like, you know, buying a home and then creating that loan. Uh, and then obviously things like has done well and Lowe's has done well because then people are buying these homes and they have equity on the houses and they're maybe going to a new home or, or a bigger home or downsizing, but they want to fix things they then take this equity that they had from their previous home and they're, they're spending it and, and doing upgrades. Uh, for home improvements Uh, so that, you know, that's why if you look at those two companies, they're they're actually doing uh, quite well since, you know, the CARES Act was passed uh, and the Fed went to rates with zero. So, and that's kind of how the lower interest rates kind of would help the actual economy. But since there's just so many unemployed Americans right now, it's very hard to get to those, you know, 15 million Americans, especially when we're not, uh, we're all working remotely kind of like what we're doing right now on this, uh, you know, podcast and where, you know, maybe we used to, you know, we used to have studios, right. And yeah, you know, we would we, be in a studio room right now. And then I would want to, you know, do a happy hour with you afterwards. And then we go out to a local restaurant and then we, you know, we have, you know, spend a couple hundred dollars at, at a happy hour or, you know, then I'm, I'm in a city and then grab, you know, lunch and help that small business grab like a $10 sandwich. So like, all those small businesses in like the big cities, like San Fran and New York, especially in like New York, where um, you have all these small businesses, like all those pizzeria shops, right? So if there's no more people working in Manhattan, that you know, and which there are, are I forgot what the actual numbers are, but it's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. All those like small business pizzeria shops in New York and Manhattan—they're losing out on business because where's their where's, where's that lunch crowd? Where's that late dinner rush, right? Because you don't have that guy leaving the office at seven o'clock on, on a Wednesday who you know missed dinner at home, who has to pick a slice uh, up at the parlor uh, on his way to the train station. So like all of that business and all that you know spending in the economy has now you know taken a time. Um, but then things like well, Home Depot is doing really well because people are buying houses, moving to the suburbs and, and remodeling homes. So Home Depot is doing really well. And we're, we're, you know, leaving these small businesses uh, behind uh, for the economy. So there's a lot of factors into it. I mean, that's just natural. I mean, but I I mean natural because of the way that the government reacted in in shutting down the economy with coronavirus Uh, you know, it may be a little bit different if we never went to that length of shutting down everything. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, because of what has happened uh, has affected a lot of small businesses, especially in cities like, you know, all that, you know i uh, you know i'll use new york because you know people can kind of get the idea it's like everyone used to go into the city and get that cup of coffee going you know and there used to be a coffee shop right so if there's no one going into the office anymore all those small businesses that were selling coffee uh because they, you know they, they got a small little spot in san fran or, or new york or you know l.a or phoenix uh that they were hoping to make money selling coffee in the morning well none of that foot. Traffic is there anymore? All those businesses then go go out of business. Uh, I mean, that, and that's what happens during you know downturns in a business cycle. But then, like I, I go back to the big companies. Uh, well, then you know Apple, and of course, benefits from everyone working remotely and, and needing new electronic devices. So their business goes up. You know, while all, all these small businesses of America take a huge hit.
0: Yeah, the business cycle is a you know really. I think good way to look at things. Um, so typically, what would happen in a business cycle if there wasn't so much uh, central planning over the economy is, you know, these companies like the airlines wouldn't have been doing things like billion-dollar stock buybacks, and they might have cash on hand to uh, deal with the situation. Then bad companies would go out of business. But what our entire economy, or at least the bigger firms that are closer to the politicians, um, uh, are incentivized to do is to you know operate with way too much debt and then get bailed out if anything happens
1: well if you look at debt to gdp it's now at like 136 mm-hmm. percent so one of the reasons why and it's not just the us it's so i don't want to make it seem like the, the us is the only one that's like it's it's all countries. um mm-hmm. but you know because we live in the us it uh to so everyone who's trying is on the same page. Uh, so the debt to GDP is 136 right now, meaning that the government is spending more money and giving it out than we are producing uh, goods. So the only way that the GDP numbers can grow is if the government basically continues to dole out money uh, for the GDP to grow. And it's been over 100% for, I forgot how long, but it's been a while though. So it's not like it it just happened when coronavirus happened, it just accelerated. I think it went from like one, before coronavirus, it was like 120-ish, maybe a little bit lower, 120. And then after coronavirus, it shot to like 136. So the amount of debt that we were taking on to get the GDP numbers, right? So they, they were describing that this year we ended the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. Well, it wasn't really an economic expansion. It was just a debt expansion. So the, all the debt that we accumulated as a society, we just took on more money from the future to purchase goods today, like maxing out those credit cards uh, and then buying goods today, which kept the GDP high. And when you do that, you, that means that you have to suffer in the, in the future if you buy something today, because that means you won't have any money because you got to pay off your credit card so now they they realize with everything going on with coronavirus and that and that's why these, these stimulus talks like you know the democrats wanted originally like 3.4 trillion then it got down like 2.4 the republicans were like at 1 trillion and it's like now we're just talking trillions like and we just did 3 trillion in march and seven months later we're talking like another 3 trillion so that means like going forward you know, the government's going to have to print like $6 trillion out of nothing for the foreseeable future because no one, everyone's tapped on debt. So you and I could be tapped on debt. And that means that our future spending is going to be limited. So that means the GDP in the future won't grow. And then that's when you can have, which, which I believe that we're in right now is stagnation, where you don't actually have economic growth because we're not actually making more things, but you have more money and the prices of goods go higher, and then you have higher unemployment, which is around, you know, truly around, I think, uh, I think it's re- it was reported around 8% on the last jobs report. But I think uh, unemployment for Americans is really around 15%. And I think because of the work remotely movement, uh, you're not gonna have, you know, because a lot of those people who are unemployed, are the people we talked about, like those small business owners that you know, are, are, are not, so, you know, you're gonna have long, you know, unemployment lasts longer, prices rising, and then no economic growth. So that's stagflation in, in my book. And But if you we weren't, weren't having those the massive amounts of uh, stimulus that the government is doing, we would be in an actual depression uh, because of what they're doing, it's helped maintaining those artificially high prices. And that's why we're in stagflation.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, when we're looking at the economy right now, it's really important to have uh, a bigger time uh, perspective instead of just seeing that, like, you know, the issues we have are because the Democrat shutdowns or because of Trump's tax cuts or, you know, whatever is being thrown out there, that this has been decades in the making. Um, You know, if we weren't so over leveraged as a society, it'd probably be easier to bounce back. Well, it's not good politics, so um, especially when you're running up for a re-election.
1: And when you're running for a re-election, if the economy is not doing well, your chances of, you know, we'll find out how this one goes in 21 days. But uh, usually if the economy is in a recession, uh, no president has won re-election dating back to uh, Hoover, I believe. So mm-hmm. Hoover was the first president, and then we'd had Hoover, uh, we had Carter and then we had Bush senior and then, uh, Trump would be the next president, uh, for, you know, so we'll see if it's different this time. Um, but yeah, no, no president has won a election during a, a, re- a recession. So, uh, it'll be interesting or in the, at least over the past hundred years or so. So it'll be interesting to see if, um, you know, how that plays out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all dreading November together <laughs> so yeah um uh, yeah you uh, go on. sorry so the system is really uh just broken and i think that people are waking up to it how do we how do we exit this uh system
1: oh well there's uh well my opinion there's a, a couple of different ways there is one the honest way uh which would mean that you would have to cut government programs Uh, and you'd have to have uh, interest rates rise and not have the Fed keep them at zero, which would be extremely painful for the economy. Uh, But that that would be the honest way. So basically, uh, letting the market function and let things play on its own, uh, the laissez-faire, way, as you would say, which is political suicide, because that's that's the other issue, is that when we have these type of crises, it makes it seem like that the government's responsible for solving the problem uh, because they want to get reelected, right? So, I, you know, if, if, and I'm not saying which side is right or wrong. I'm just saying how they, they play, you know, it doesn't matter who you are on what side, you know, because they, they want your vote to say that I will fix it. Vote for me and I will fix the problem. But the problem has been ongoing, you know, for a very long time. And then they just exacerbate the, the, the solution or their solution every single time. Cause it's the same thing over and over and over again so the only real way would be to just let everything kind of like function uh we let people make their own decisions and not have the government involvement uh, and you know now everything's a crisis you know you have the student loan crisis well how did the student loan crisis become a crisis well the politicians you know on both sides republican democrats said well everyone should be able to go to college so we'll back you know, government uh, will we'll back student loans for everybody. Well, why should like an 18-year-old be approved for like 50000 or $60,000 loan with, you know, no savings and, and no history of paying back a loan, right? The whole point of, of a loan and, and having a, a credit is knowing that when the bank gives you money, they're going to get paid back. Well, banks never were lending a lot of money to kids, so the cost of education were low. Until the government said, "Well, if the student defaults, we'll back the loan because we want to make it sure that kids go to college." So the, you know, after prices started raising or started increasing, uh, and they just kept on getting backs, which means that they're backed by the taxpayer. So me and you are on the hook for people defaulting on their student loans, and uh, you know that's just one example on on how they thought not enough people were going to college. So the, the government decided that we'll we'll back all the loans. And that's how now we're 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 today. So they created their own problem basically. instead of like well, if you want to go to college, you have to get a job and you have to work and go to school. Uh, so and that's how we used to do it before they approved the back of government loans. Was that, that you either work and paid your way through school, or you know if your parents were wealthy enough, you know they would help you know pay for school. That's how it used to be. So and it, it worked, but you know now they want everyone to go to school. But then if everyone goes to school it messes up supply and demand. Because now if everyone has a bachelor's degree, a bachelor's degree is not just like a high school diploma. So then everyone needs to go now back to school to get a master's degree. And now you need to have a master's degree to be more significantly better than someone with a bachelor's degree. But then if everyone gets a master's degree, well then now I need to get a PhD. So it's like this ongoing scheme of, well, I, I, I need to be better than the person before me. And because the government keeps on approving all these loans, I can keep on going to school and taking on more debt and more debt and more debt and getting uh, you know, more degrees and more degrees. But then if everyone starts doing that, all of the degrees start to become worthless and worthless because then everyone has them. So it throws off the entire supply equation of the, of the demand market side of what uh, people should be going into the labor field. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think one of the uh, really unfortunate things happening is so many people going into school don't know how worthless uh, certain bachelor's degrees are. You get a bachelor's degree in psychology or sociology and you can't do anything with it. You can get an entry-level job. Um, but... And I know a
1: lot of people who will get a bachelor's degree, but then they want to become teachers. But since they got a bachelor's degree in education then they have to go back to the master's program, to uh, be able to t- become a teacher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, take out more debt. And, you know, it's just, um, it's, yeah, definitely a mess. But the whole point is that government got involved in the market. To, and why? Because they were trying to get people's votes uh, and get the younger demographics uh, to vote for them by saying, we're going to make college af- affordable for people. And by doing so, it now turned into a student debt crisis.
0: Yeah. And it became even more unaffordable. Um,
1: now now, it, now the, the vote is, well, vote for me and we're going to cancel student loan debt. Well, who's going to cancel student loan debt? Uh, well, the, that means that the bank would just pay for it and the American taxpayer is on, on the hook for it. But mm-hmm. is their way of now getting your vote uh, for, you know, uh, for solving that crisis that, that they created? You know, they, and it goes on both sides. Like Trump created the trade war and then he solved the trade war with a, a trade deal signing. So we, we didn't have a trade war before Trump happened. And then we had a trade war and then he got the trade deal. So we had no problem. He created the problem. Then he solved the problem. Then he gloats about how he, he solved his own problem that he created. So, uh, once again, uh, government getting involved in the markets, just so that they can say that they're the heroes basically. And then that's how you, you get your votes on, through our system.
0: Yeah. And they love to use tariffs and things like that to protect the government monopoly or created monopolies. Um, yeah, one—I've been reading this book uh, that was suggested to me on the history of the Federal Reserve, called "The Creature from from the Jekyll or Creature from Jekyll Island," and uh, it's been a really good read. Uh, when you were talking, one of the things that came to mind was the idea of the FDIC being a scam, and essentially, uh, you know when. When you go into the bank, you see uh, a placard or something that says FDIC insured. And people look at that and think that that means that they should be more comfortable with their money in the bank. Because if the bank is insolvent, which they all are, or on the verge of being, um, it means that the government will back up you know, the money they have. But what people don't think of is what that really means is it gives the banks free reign to, to dish out all these loans that are subprime. Um. And then we bail them out with our money, um, which is pretty wild. Uh, yeah, just came to mind when you were talking. Well,
1: that's yeah, that's just uh one of the things that are are uh, an issue with today. But you know, uh, well, someone asked me, well, you know, we shouldn't be bailing out the airlines. We should be bailing out, like we said, like that that small business owner who runs that pizza shop. You know, uh, and you know, the coffee shop that, you know, employs people and gives coffee every morning. But, you know, I'm not for bailouts in general, but like, you know, the, kind of like the argument was like, uh, what, how are we bailing out and giving all this money for, you know, the, the airlines and, you know, maybe the small business guys don't need as much money we can help them out. And well, I mean, my answer is like, well, how much is average Joe or Jane donating to Trump or uh, Pelosi's, you know, PAC contribution? Versus the airlines are saying, you know, here's a check for X many millions of dollars uh, to get the stimulus approved, where, you know, Pizzeria Joe and Coffee Jane uh, can't do that for Trump or, or Pelosi. So, you know, a lot of the talks is like, well, well, we'll just get the bailout for the airlines and focus on everything else later. So, once again, kind of screwing over, uh, you know, that small business owner versus, say, the, the airlines, the unfairness. And that, that that's one of my you know, big things, if, if you follow me on social media, uh, is I advocate for, is that government should not get involved because it picks these winners and losers. So a lot of people are upset that they're even talking about another bailout for the airlines when all these other small businesses are, are going to get canned. And I said, well, that's what happens when government gets involved. Uh, they get they decide who wins and they decide who loses instead of a true free market system. Well, well, if, the, if mom and pop are going to fail at the pizzeria and the coffee shop, well, so do the airlines. And that's capitalism. It sucks. But at least it's fair that the airlines are going to have a hard time. And so does mom and pop uh, running the local stores. And then uh, you let, you know, maybe everyone has to come together and and create a new business. Uh, But by then the government coming in and saying airlines are good and mom and pop are bad, it disrupts the entire free market system. So, you know, I don't want anyone to fail. But I mean, you know, people make bad decisions. And that's how we learn. So like, going forward in the future, uh, if the airlines realize, well, we kind of put ourselves in this situation because we bought too much of our stock back and we increased our dividends too much. Well, guess what? In the future, we're not doing that because we don't know if this happens again. So that's how you fix the problem is you learn from your mistakes. So, and then you address those problems going forward. Um, And that's the whole point of failing is, is learning from your mistakes, failing and then saying, Hey, government, give me money you're not learning from your mistakes. You're not improving your business model. You're not enhancing your overall, you, you know, same thing uh, with the banks. So uh, we're, we're not learning anything as a society by just asking the government for money every time there's a, a crisis, whether it's a natural disaster or a uh, self-inflicted wound um, or a terrorist type of, of a threat. And I made that argument also is that when you looked at 9-11, the airlines didn't get a bailout during 9-11. So uh, I think something like 15 airlines went bankrupt. They went chapter 11 and chapter seven after 9-11 uh, because and they didn't request money from the government. And we didn't do bailouts back then. So all those airlines after 9-11, because no one wanted to fly because they were afraid that, you know, their plane was going to, you know, uh, become a weapon, they were in trouble, so they weren't making money. So what did they do? They filed for bankruptcy, chapter 11, chapter seven bankruptcy. The other big airlines bought those uh, those uh, smaller airlines, some of them did at least, to then expand their business and made their business more profitable. And that's what happens during a free market. So you didn't have that bailout. Well, after coronavirus, how many airlines filed for chapter seven, chapter 11 bankruptcy? Zero. So why was it okay for them to go under after 9-11, but then coronavirus, it wasn't, like, it wasn't the plane, uh, you know, it wasn't the airline's fault that terrorists flew planes into the buildings around the world, uh, but they had to suffer the consequences, and that's, you know, it sucked. I'm a New Yorker, and I'm not saying it was good, but I mean, that was the reality, was there was an incident, and companies ha- had to... Uh, because it was it was unheard of in in 2000 to, for the government to just dole out money to, to companies. You know the, the whole you know government giving uh, people money or companies money started in 2008. So like if there was ever um, an incident or a crisis the before 2008 was that we had to deal with it as a society. You know it wasn't until 2008 where the government decided that uh, we're going to use American taxpayer dollars and, and give uh, people money so you know it's really just a new phenomenon so that was the other thing is people were wondering like why is the stock market going up when we're in this great recession the economy shut down and it's going up and up and up uh and that was because um we interfered in the market so we had this sharp decline and we had this massive rally in the in the stock market because of government intervention to to supply money in the system when you look at you know recessions in 2008 and in 2000 i mean those things those it, the decline lasted, you know, two years, right? So, and th- this decline in the market uh, only lasted thirty days. So, you know, it's completely different uh, than anything else in history. When comparing
0: it, yeah, yeah, and it's uh, we're at a point. To, the problem with inflationary money is it disincentivizes saving, um, because if you put your cash in the bank, it's not going to gain any interest and it's just going to perpetually lose its value and purchasing power. Um, if we had hard money, like a gold standard, for example, uh, people would be incentivized to save and we wouldn't have to go into all these crazy uh, Ponzi schemes in the stock market. Um, I mean, you could, but, you know, it would be more of a challenge for companies to produce value rather than just manipulate their stock prices um well, well the thing is you don't necessarily need i mean
1: hard money it, it works right we, we know it works because we used to do it uh but you don't necessarily need hard money um you need the, the market to dictate because hard money you're still have you still have interest rates so you know, it's just the amount of of gold that was, it was backed by the currency. But before 1971, we went off the gold standard. I mean, there were still, you still had rates, interest rates rise on the dollar go up and down while we were on the gold standard. So, you know, trying to figure out when we went off the gold standard was, well, what rate does the free market want? Uh, And we, and we found out, which was pretty painful in the, in the eighties. Uh, but then you had the interference from the 1980s where the rates just kept on going lower and, lower and lower and lower until now we're at zero. Uh, and the Fed's like we're just going to keep them there. Is now it's disrupting the free market, finding out what the right price is on, on the dollar. And that's the point of, of keeping the interest rates so low is you don't really know what the true value is if there's no interest rate. So, I mean, you don't need to go on a gold standard, but you just need the, the rates to be... Um, dictated by the, the market so like if obviously if there's a lot of housing demand rates would rise so that would that would make it more expensive for you to buy that house which would then suppress the demand but then if more people if want to, to buy a home, home or i'm sorry if no one wants to buy a home the interest rates would then get lower just by on free market which would then uh, spur demand so basically just letting free market work and letting supply and demand work it way out so that you know what the true value is on on the dollar Uh, but then when The the fed says that the interest rates are staying at zero you're not letting that free market dictate what the true value is and then that affects people with savings account because they get screwed by not getting any type of interest because the loans are made through banks a lot of people don't understand like how do you get why are the banks not paying an interest rate well the whole point of an interest rate is that the banks are supposed to take your money that you're saving and then they create loans whether it be like a car loan a housing loan you know uh, loan whatever and they're giving it to someone who doesn't have the money and they get they collect an interest and because they're using your money to do that you then get a kickback of whatever that that interest rate is but with the interest rates at zero all the banks are borrowing at zero and therefore are making loans near zero percent so therefore your money in your bank gives you
0: yeah, that's a really good explanation of it. Um, I'm watching. I'm sitting over here. I I think it'd be a good time to talk about Bitcoin a little bit because I'm All sitting. Right. I'm sitting here watching the chart just go up right now. It's uh, okay. What do we got? Uh, we're sitting at eleven thousand seven hundred. So, up, up a good. Uh, let me pull up the percentage gain today. Um we are up about five percent today. So Peter Schiff will probably be tweeting about it going <laughs> to zero somewhere. But um so yeah, um Bitcoin I I think is a really interesting experiment because in some ways it is a opt-out of the current financial system of uh government monopoly over money. Um gold is proven over a long period of time to retain its value um, much much longer than bitcoin's uh, um, short existence Uh, but bitcoin has some different characteristics than than gold it's easy to uh, uh, send to places uh, uh, fairly quickly and inexpensively like i could Walk around with a million dollars of Bitcoin in my pocket or on my phone, whereas I can't do that with uh, uh, gold. So there's some some definite uh, um, advantages. Um,
1: right. So when I look at Bitcoin, I just look at it as another way of a medium of exchange. versus mm-hmm. I look at gold as an asset. Mm-hmm. So uh, Bitcoin is a way for you to possibly pay someone else money. So if you want to purchase food, you could use dollars or Bitcoin uh, you know, versus gold. You, I mean, you could do that with gold too. Like I can hand you physically over a gold, uh, you know, ounce of gold coin, but you're not carrying around all your gold. Uh, you know, you're, you're using dollars and or uh, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies as a medium of exchange for, uh, for goods. Now, the thing is, when I, when I look at cryptocurrencies it, and people are like, well, the, the argument of gold or metals in general versus cryptocurrencies is well, what are cryptocurrencies made out of? They're made out of uh, semiconductors. They're made out of data centers. They're made out of uh, energy, electricity. You need phones. So basically you need all of these devices. and A lot of this, the devices, you know, because you're mining Bitcoin or a lot of people who mine Bitcoin is a source of energy. Uh, metals is one of the, the main uh, pieces of equipment that you need to mine cryptocurrencies because you need electricity. So they're, they're using copper, they're using silver, because all that stuff is built in through electricity. So if anything, without the metals, Bitcoin would actually be worth zero because you need those metals for the entire system. to uh, function. Even if you put in metals and you create the circuit boards. Ah, uh, you're using electricity to charge up so that you can use it on your iPhone. Uh, so you need metals which create the product to use Bitcoin as a medium of exchange to get that good or services uh, that you're using it. So, like I said, I would, I still would look at Bitcoin as just a something of a medium of exchange. That obviously people trade it, buy it and sell it every day. So the price of it goes up and down just like any other financial asset. I also look at gold or, or silver a little bit too, uh, as an asset, just like my house is an asset where, you know, unless I stop paying for my house, you know, that house asset is, is my own. Now my house is say worth X amount of dollars. Uh, you know, prices of housing goes up and down, but, um, it's, it's not, I don't have the physical cash. Right. So if you're, if you own your house, I don't have in my bank account, like Oh, here's X amount of dollars that my house is worth. I just know the value of the, the home. That's kind of like the same thing with gold. It's like I don't really need gold right now, but uh, you know I, I have it because I want a, an asset like my house is an asset. So, and I know that with the dollar um, depreciating, that that asset will be more valuable. And then if I need to cash in the future for a medium exchange, I can always sell it for cash in the future. Uh, same thing with 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 Bitcoin and or cryptocurrencies. But I think that, that's what people kind of get the misconception of is it's still just medium exchange and you have to have all these things with, with cryptocurrencies uh, to function, just like you need with the digital dollar, right? So I can send people through Apple Pay, you know, I can send you 50 American dollars through Apple Pay, uh, it's, but I can't uh, send you those 50 digital American dollars on, through text or through Venmo if i didn't have what i what i mentioned like uh, electricity a battery right so your, your iphone runs lithium so without the lithium that's in the battery and, and charged i can't give you bitcoin because it's all through electronics it's, it's and through the internet connection so i need all of these uh products to make bitcoin work versus gold will it will always be just that one ounce of gold. so and that's kind of how i I look at it. So that's why I'm not really big into cryptocurrencies. I understand it. I love technology. Uh, I'm not sure how really it will play out in the future. I I have a couple of different theses and and scenarios. Um, But, you know, that's how I just generally look at it. Um, And since it's traded and people buy it and sell it, you have the price of it going up and down. But, uh, you know, if you take away, like I said, all those pieces that make Bitcoin, Bitcoin. the the true value of Bitcoin would be zero then. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Gold will always have utility. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of people out there that would argue that you can use Bitcoin even without the internet. But if the internet were to fail, uh, most people would not use it as a medium of exchange or or be even able to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I'm not saying like, uh, you know, Doomsday where they, you know, the complete blackout and... and Something on that scale. I'm just saying that um, without all the things that actually how you can use and make Bitcoin, uh, you need actual physical things uh, to, 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 to get your Bitcoin right. So, it's, it's basically so all Bitcoin is made up of all the things like electricity, energy, uh, software. Uh, so, it takes all of these components to create one, one Bitcoin. And um, It has a lot of, you know, uh, and based on what it takes to create one bitcoin. So you have, you know, the software guys. You have the energy. You have the battery. You have the internet connector, or uh, you know, the wireless provider. Uh, So all of this is basically taking into the price of one bitcoin, right? So same thing with gold. You know, if I don't have any gold, I have to mine it. So that means I need to buy equipment. I need to dig in the ground. Uh, So you know all of these components, and then that's why gold has a value. Besides that, it's it's, it can be used for things. But I have to physically do something, and then I need tools uh, because I can use my hands, but my hands are only going to get me so much. So if I buy a tractor, which then someone makes, that I can dig more for gold. I can get more gold. It saves me time. So once again, it's like all of these things, and that's kind of why we have a a medium exchange is because uh, it's about how much value. You know, if you produce more then you're going to be more wealth. And that's kind of like the point of capitalism. If you produce more, you have more uh, excess wealth. And that's what happens. And that's why I'm in this business. People don't understand what wealth is. Wealth is a, uh, an excess of your productivity. So if you make $100,000 a year and you only spend 80,000, you pocketed 20,000. So that means that your wealth for the years is an extra 20,000. Well, if the Federal Reserve is saying, well, we're going to inflate away those $20,000 by 2%, 3%, 4% a year, why, how, it doesn't make sense to own dollars because why would my wealth currently being stored in dollars at 20000 lose or go down 2% every single year when that's supposed to be wealth? Wealth is supposed to be something that appreciates over time. So that's why you have this issue that if you have interest rates at 2%, well, then I'll keep my 20,000 in dollars because now I'm collecting 2% and inflation's 2%. So now I'm maintaining my purchasing power. But when you're telling me rates are at zero and inflation is gonna be three or 4%, I need to get out of dollars and I need to go somewhere, whether currently that's Bitcoin, gold or uh, Tesla or Apple stock, uh, but I'm gonna get out of dollars uh, to fight that inflation because my 20,000 is my wealth. And now I have to preserve that I think that's what a lot of people don't realize what's causing uh you know everything that's happened this year and and even beforehand
0: yeah i liked your explanation of capitalism and i think we're seeing such a big emphasis on socialism because what people know is that um there is a uh, you know they're producing value and they're not getting returns on it and there's kind of a disparage, in, um, a growing like uh, wealth gap as that wealth is getting confiscated by inflation. It's probably the third time I've talked about it, but um, yeah, true capitalism is producing value and trading um, voluntarily. Um, and when there's coercion, when there's uh, you know price fixing and you know, all, all these things like minimum wage, it, it interferes with that and actually leads to less uh, good for the society. Now, things like uh, Bitcoin or, you know, a car or uh, um, so like a difference between like a Porsche and a Ford Fiesta, which is a piece of crap. Um, the Porsche has more value because it is harder to make. And so, Gold has value more so than precious metals, one, because of the scarcity, but also the difficulty to extract it. Um, and that's a guarantee, uh, Bitcoin, you know, is very, very difficult to make. It has a fixed, uh, supply. Um, there is a difficulty adjustment. So if you can't mine it quicker or slower, you can for very short amounts of time, but the difficulty adjustment happens every two weeks. Um, So the more power and energy that goes into it, you get the same um, amount of Bitcoin, um, which is a really interesting uh, and unique uh, characteristic of it um, that almost guarantees its value uh, as long as people are, you know, really competing for it and they are. But yeah, those ideas of uh, scarcity and and difficulty to produce um, are really, really important to get. Now, it's getting more and more easy for the government to, uh, you know, print money. most of what they're doing is just digital uh, changing zeros in bank accounts. You know, the Fed doesn't issue cash. You know, a lot of it, they just, you know, will reach out to JP Morgan and say, you now have X amount of money and you owe us X amount, you know, interest on it. Um, uh, what is, what do you think is the, the long-term uh, uh, play for fiat money? Like where, where are oh, we going?
1: Uh, yeah, I guess this could be a good way to kind of sum everything up, right? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think uh, the near term, if you look at, uh, I just uh, put out today, Uh, through social media that south korea is officially going universal basic income Mm. canada is looking at it universal basic income ubi has already been talked about with andrew yang here in the united states uh the six hundred dollar extra week stimulus for unemployed in the first cares act which ended up being like an additional two thousand four hundred dollars uh could have been like a a test run on on universal basic income they're talking about giving out in the next stimulus package, whether it's with Trump or you know after re-election or after the election, uh, an additional $1,200 stimulus checks and like $1,000 per child, uh, per family. So basically what I'm trying to say is the u- universal basic income is here uh, because everyone's in debt and you need people basically to continue to spend. You need to basically provide them or the government is trying to provide them to kind of keep the whole system going. Uh, and they looked at what Japan and Europe and Sweden has done with negative interest rates. And the thing is with negative interest rates is it only works Or the, the theory behind negative interest rates is that you wouldn't want to be in your currency because you're, it's like inflation, except accelerated, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it only works is if, people are taking out loans so that they're buying financial assets where the assets are appreciating value. But the thing is like a house like that, well, if you plan on living in a house for a while, you know, it's going to take you a while to get to be the beneficiary of the negative interest rate. So if you buy a house for 500,000 and because it goes to a million, but that could take like 10 years with negative interest rates to happen. So that's why if you look at like the ECB in Japan, they're like, well, we've been doing negative interest rates and uh, we haven't had like uh, any, uh, these issues, or it's not working, which we thought would have this inflation effect. Well, that's because, like, why would I sell my house? Because I, I still need to live somewhere. So, if it's a financial asset, it doesn't really help, and then you still have poverty uh, or low income, middle income, uh, so it doesn't really help them. So, you know, these all these, you know, U.S. stimulus, different types of programs that they're talking about uh, is like a form of UBI. they you know, other countries are talking UBI. that's a way of getting money directly to everybody even though the wealthy may not need it but the people who aren't in higher middle income brackets getting money directly for them so that they can go spend in mom and pop's pizzeria and coffee store um you know go buy the new iphone and help the bigger corporations or you know so giving people money directly will actually then actually get the inflation that they're wanting because you're giving people money to go spend versus like this financial trickery of negative interest rates, but no one really understands it. So it, it did not really play out to the way that they thought it would play out. Um, and maybe if they marketed it more better, or marketed it better, saying, well, if you buy, buy a house and you borrow 500,000, you only have to pay it back 400,000. You know, maybe you would have, uh, people buying houses because they have to pay people back less money. Um, so. But that really hasn't happened. I don't see that happening. So that's why I think the the next stage, uh, because it's, uh, I I call it the great Fiat Ponzi scheme. So I think the next part of this scheme is actually going to be UBI, which will get the inflation that they're looking for. And basically we're now on the lines of what they call as modern monetary theory or MMT, where basically the government just prints whatever amount of money, which with 27 trillion in federal debt, uh, not including. uh unfundable liabilities uh is basically we're there already Uh, but the money has basically stayed in financial assets and not really trickled down into the, the the general population which i think why there's a universal basic income movement because people are so fed up with the bailouts from starting with 2008 and they're like, we keep on printing billions and trillions of dollars, but yet, you know, the lower and middle uh, class Americans are getting screwed. But eventually, we're going to find out that U- UBI is, is not a uh, utopia type world. Uh, it may start out like it, uh, but once business owners realize how much more they can charge more, that's when you have that inflation pick up. So you'll have like these UBI programs, and first it'll be euphoric, be very utopian like. Everyone thinks it's great. And then, like, iPhones this year are $1,000. The next year, iPhones are $2,000. The following year, iPhones are $3,000. And people are like, what the hell just happened? And, you know, same thing with food. And, you know, every week or every month, we're spending $300 in food. Now we're spending $600 in food. Then, you know, 900 So it just slowly starts to creep up and creep up until basically the supply and demand is then rebalanced. And then that purchasing power of whatever amount of UBI is, by June Amount that it, that applies us to that because we're yeah. not making any more goods. So that's how I see, and then that's when inflation will really get going. And then talks of you know how are we going to control inflation, and then the, the way to control the inflation would be then to remove the UBI, because now you're taking money out of the system. So now people have less money. So that means they can't spend on goods and services, based or through taxation. Raise taxes. So, in in Stephanie Kelton's book called *The Deficit Myth*, she basically says that you can print all this money that you want in the world, and then that if, if this inflation scenario that I'm talking about plays out, well, instead of paying 20% taxes, we're going to make taxes 50%. So maybe we'll keep UBI, but we're now we're going to tax you more money out of your your paycheck. So basically, it's just a way for them to take more money out of you. You know, once again, get, they're getting involved in get free market. Uh, Because it'll be good at first. Everyone thinks it'll be great getting $1,000 extra a month. Uh, Then a year or two goes by, and then they realize that $1,000 doesn't buy them the same as as before, before they had $1,000. Then maybe the outcry will be, we need $2,000 a month. And then the the cry for UBI price will go higher and higher and higher because they'll say, well, $1,000 was such a great success. Why not make it $2,000 now? And then so forth and so forth. And then you get that inflation. Then they say, well, well, hold, hold it. Now let's remove it, or we'll raise taxes. And you'll still get UBI, but we're going to take more money out. You know, it's just, it's just all a uh, facade. And, and you know, people want government, and people want government involved. Uh, and we just don't want to go through the process of letting the free market kind of just working its way, because it takes a while. It could take a year. It could take two years. And you know, everyone wants something done now. Uh, and that's why we're seeing what we're seeing today. That's kind of like where I see where we're going with UBI though, in the markets.
0: Yeah. So pretty much what I hear is UBI will be good business for you. Cause there'll be more of a demand for people to need help with their wealth being protected. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for that explanation. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's growing ever more clear that the end game for fiat currencies is just zero and, that's why it's so good to, to buy gold and assets that are, that are scarce. You know, real estate, um, Bitcoin, my favorite. Um, where where can uh, people find your work? I know you have a yes. cool podcast you have going.
1: Cool. So, yeah, I'm on uh, YouTube for Golden Coast Consultants. Uh, I'm also on uh, all social media platforms, uh, and on Twitter handle, you can find me at Greg Crennan and uh, if you guys have questions on uh, how to either start or you know change or, or just want to have a free consultation with me uh, for any of your listeners uh, i do wealth management for individuals so each individual is different based on what they're trying to solve for so i basically create individual uh, wealth plans for, for people if you and if you believe in what what i'm basically saying is happening uh, can get everyone on the, on the right path and protect their wealth going forward from out of
0: control central banks. Yep. Those crazy central banks, J-Pow and his money printer. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I found you on Twitter because I'm pretty sure uh, uh, FedUp uh, tagged you in a post to troll me um, on gold and uh, yeah, really enjoy your work and uh, you definitely have an awesome podcast on YouTube for um, yeah, you know. anyone who's interested, I have some,
1: uh, you know, fun, some material for people to go over. I, I kind of, my annual client letter that I issued out this uh, this year is on LinkedIn. It's also my, mm-hmm. it's on my Twitter handle, Uh to so kind of go, it's like a, a little bit longer of an explanation into what the fiat scheme is and how we got here today. So a little bit more in depth based on our conversation we had today.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for uh, doing the interview.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me and maybe after the election we can see what's going on with the markets then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed that interview a lot. Greg's a really smart guy and uh, he's been pretty helpful Um, just having discussions with uh, people and myself on Twitter. Um, He's pretty reachable on LinkedIn if you are interested in pursuing him as a financial advisor. Uh, One of the things that he said as far as uh, having an edge on some of the bigger wealth management firms is that uh, when you go with a financial advisor like him, you're not going to get destroyed by fees in the same way that you would with the bigger firms. Um, And these are fees that you generally don't really notice when you're meeting with the advisor. Uh, But yeah, if you like what I'm doing with the podcast, I'd love if you would... uh, support me. And, you know, some of the best ways to support me is liking, subscribing, leaving a review. Um, But yeah, if you want to go to the next level of support, I just launched a Patreon page and you can become a patron. And uh, there's some cool things that you can check out on there. But anyways, thanks for stopping by the podcast.